Well, hey, good morning, church. How's everybody doing this morning? That was lame. So if you're new here, I apologize on behalf. We're not normally that lame. Let's try it again. How's everybody doing this morning? Yeah. That's the sugar right there. <laughs> That's so good to see you all this morning. Uh, before we start, I just want to say, go Chiefs. The Vikings aren't in the playoffs, so come on now. we got to root for somebody. Uh, if you're new with us, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at Zion. If you're looking for a church home and you're not a Chiefs fan, I apologize. Um, no, really, if you are looking for a church home or looking for a place to call family, if this is your first time here with us, welcome. We are so glad you're here. I also want to give a good shout out to those who are watching online. Thank you for being here. And uh, can we just give a thank you to our worship team and the time that we have that they lead us into the presence of the Lord? Um, as someone who's, I started off in worship um, years ago, actually I was 15, 14 when I first started in worship, and I'll tell you, I actually encountered God first through music before I did anything else, and that's part of the power of our worship is, and we talked about this last week, is part of the reason why we worship isn't just to bring fame to the Lord because it blesses the Lord's heart, it's also an encouragement for us. Would you agree with that? Like when you hear other people worship, if you've ever been in an, an encounter like that, there's something powerful about the saints worshiping together. Uh, we're going to get right into it. Would you stand with me as we read our verse for today? Romans 5, 1 through 2, real loud and proud. Here we go. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Romans 5, 1 and 2, you may be seated, the word of the Lord. Um, now, I've been a Christian now for almost 35 years, and I've shared this story many times, but I want to share part of my story I haven't shared with you. Uh, so that summer night in 1989, my youth pastor asked if anybody wanted to know the Lord. And I got to tell you, that night, like some of you did last week, we had over 15 people raise their hands to surrender their life to Christ last week. Can we give a praise God for that? Now, if you're Lutheran and been raised Lutheran, you're like, what was that all about? Because Lutherans aren't known for doing that. And we're going to talk more about what that means. And, and I, it's actually part of my story. But I want to tell you this. Last week, if you did raise your hand, I, I, the next step for you might be this. If you've never given your life to Christ or if you're new in faith or it's a recommitment to faith, uh, go to Alpha. Alpha on Wednesday nights. Jennifer Colby heads that up. Alpha is a phenomenal program. How many of you have been through Alpha before? Thank you. Was that Lee? Yeah. Yeah. You? <laughs> Uh, Alpha is a phenomenal ministry. In fact, Lee is a testimony of the power that God uses Alpha. Uh, it reactivated his faith, and he has stepped up and grown in tremendous ways. Secondly, if you don't have a Bible, let us know. We want to get you a Bible. And then the third one is that it's an opportunity to celebrate. And part of the way we celebrate, and I want to point you to something that's coming up here, and it actually does still connect to my story, and that is baptism. We're going to be doing a baptism celebration right after Easter. And so if you've never been baptized, if you just gave your life to Christ, or if baptism is an opportunity to reaffirm what God has done in your life, we want you to sign up for it. We're going to get the big old dunk tank right here. It's going to be awesome. And we're going to get people wet. Yeah! I love baptism. Thank you. Someone, yes, yeah, someone's as excited as I am. Uh, all right, so that being said, let me, I want to share a little bit about what happened in me. And all the things that I just shared were part of my story, but there was a part that I, I haven't expressed before. See, that night, 
my pastor asked if anybody wanted to know Jesus, to, to understand, to experience the love of God the Father, the love of Christ, to raise their hand. And on that summer night, I raised my hand. I didn't really want my hand to go up. It just kind of went up and I, you know, I brought it, no, go back up. And that night I gave my life to Christ. And, and here's what happened. That summer night, God gripped my heart in my life. And my story has never been the same since. Now, I want to share a little bit about what Tim, my youth pastor, shared that night that kind of stirred in me and made me go, I don't understand that. See, I didn't grow up understanding love. I didn't understand what it meant to be loved, to be wanted and accepted. And that that night, what my pastor talked about was this idea of a loving father who sent his son for me and for you. And, and I wanted to know that love. I didn't understand that love. And, and so he said this, and, and some of you might relate to this, is, you know, if you want to know that you're saved, that you're saved from your sins, that you're, instead of going to hell, which by the way, I did not want to go to hell, um, and you wanted to go to heaven and you wanted to be forgiven past, present, and future sins, all you needed to do was raise your hand and then say a prayer. And that night, my hand went up. I, I prayed what was called the sinner's prayer, a very popular prayer back in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s. And in and, and that night, I placed my trust and faith in Jesus' perfect life, suffering on the cross, death, his resurrection. And then I trusted that I would be forgiven because of what Jesus did for me and that I would, if when I died, I would get to spend eternity with him in heaven. And that was the extent of my salvation. That, that night, my hand shot up in the air, I gave my life to Christ, and I prayed a prayer. Now, it's important because whether I understood it or not, I actually believed that I had something to do with my salvation that night. And I, I want to be clear, I was saved. God gripped my heart that night. After all, I was the one who raised my hand. I chose to accept. I chose to believe. I accepted Christ. Now, let's be clear, I was indeed saved, but that statement of I was far more important to me than I realized. And that night, while it changed me forever, there was an, another side to my story that was a little bit more insidious. One that it wasn't until years, I mean over a decade later, that I began to understand that what I believed about my salvation actually affected who I was becoming. And the first two months of my faith, and this is not an exaggeration, every time there was an altar call. Every time my pastor asked if I wanted to be saved, my hand went up and I prayed the sinner's prayer every time. And then I started keeping a ledger in my mind of sins that I had done. And, and so at the end of the week, when I'd see my pastor or my friends, I'd go and I'd confess my sins. I mean, I was taking this faith stuff pretty seriously. And, and I remember going to Tim one day and say, Tim, I cussed a lot this week and I, I lusted a little bit. And I just, I just, and I remember my pastor I'm like, wow, Jason, you're really taking this seriously. But here's what was happening. See, whether or not I knew it or not, and it wasn't because my pastor told me this, I actually didn't feel very secure in my faith. I was convinced that, yes, because I accepted Christ, because I raised my hand, because I prayed the prayer, what if I ticked God off so much that he took it back? What if it didn't stick? What if my hand raising wasn't enough what if I was not enough and at the center of this, and here's the problem, who's at the center of the salvation at that point? I was. And eventually I stopped doing that, not because my theology changed, but because I was exhausted. Do you know how hard it is to keep track of your sins? <laughs> 
it's tiring. Like, you know, especially the mental ones. Like, how many of you know, like, the outward ones, like, you know, I, I cussed, I did something. But have you, have you ever kept track of the internal sins? Like, that little moment of jealousy or rage or anger or lust or bitterness or hatred. And eventually I stopped, but again, it wasn't because I had changed my theology, but because I was simply exhausted. How many of you have ever felt exhausted before? How many of you in this room right now maybe are feeling a little exhausted? Maybe you're exhausted with life. Maybe you're exhausted by faith. I know there have been seasons in my life where my faith, I just was tired. I was exhausted because of where I was, and, and I wasn't feeling the presence of God. I, it just felt like I was distant, and my faith was exhausting, and trying to be a Christian was exhausting. By a show of hands, be honest here. How many of you ever found it exhausting to be a Christian? Come on. You, if you're not raising your hands, you're not doing it right. <laughs> because this following Jesus stuff is hard, and, and my youth pastor never told me that I was saved by my works. He didn't. I assumed it. I did what many of you in this room, what many Christians have done, is that I jumped to the logical human conclusion, which is that clearly it has to be more than God doing something in them that saves me. I have to do my part. It has to be a tit for tat, a quid pro quo, so to speak. It has to be, I have to pay to play so that if I do something, then God rewards me. I raise my hand. I pray a prayer. I do a good deed. I give an offering. I do something. And then if I do that, then God will save me. And yet what we learned last week is that's not the gospel. And so we start talking about this idea of faith and what does faith mean? And, and really when it changed for me, and maybe this will give some of you hope if you're struggling with this. It didn't really change for me until my 30s when I was doing my Master's of Divinity. Now, I want you to think about that. I got saved at 14. For over 16 years, I walked in this wrong understanding. Even as a youth pastor, I came into youth ministry thinking and not understanding. And it wasn't until I was in a systematic theology class when all of a sudden my understanding of faith, grace, mercy... Jesus' salvation changed, and you know when it changed is when I started learning about the solas. When I started processing through, what do the solas mean? See, what I believed about faith was actually shaping who I was becoming, which is why we are spending so much time each year talking about our values. We started our first year talking about the importance of belonging, because you do not have to believe to belong. And how do I know that? Because Jesus made every person who encountered him feel like they belonged. Way before they knew he was God, way before they put his faith, their faith in him, he made sure every person who encountered him felt like they belonged there. How many of you ever met somebody that just made you feel like the most important person in the room? Jesus had that incredible way of doing that. If you're new here, I hope you feel like the most important person in this room next to Jesus. Because Jesus is the most important person, Amen. <laughs> But then secondly, we talk about belief, and this is why we're focusing so much on belief, is because what we believe, we ultimately become. And here's what was happening in me. Because I believed for years that salvation was partly my doing, that I was at the center of my salvation, I always lived in fear that I wasn't enough, that I wasn't doing enough. And even when I understood theologically that I was saved by grace, it wasn't until I actually wrestled what, what, with what faith actually is that things changed for me. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about the fourth pillar of the Protestant faith. See, we're all built on the foundation of the Apostles' Creed. 
But the fourth pillar of the faith is sola grata, uh, sola fide. Everybody say sola fide. Sola fide means faith alone. Now, if you've missed any of the messages from this series, I'd encourage you to go online. You can go to our website. You can download the Zion app. You can listen to the podcast. By the way, for those of you who listen to the podcast, we've taken a break from the podcast, so we are re- we're putting out our messages on the podcast each week. Eventually, the podcast will be back. We're just kind of doing some revisioning and dreaming around that. And so if you haven't heard these, I'd encourage you to do it. But for I'm not going to assume everybody has been here every week, so I want to recap very quickly for us what we've been walking through. So we've been learning about the story of a 16th century German monk named Martin Luther. That's this guy right here. And uh, that's, that's not actually a picture of him. They didn't have cameras back then. Who, in an attempt to spark dialogue and debate around Pope Leo X's institutions of a practice called indulgences to help fund the building of St. Peter's Basilica. Now, an indulgence is the ability to buy moral righteousness, allowing the Christian to get out or escape purgatory sooner than later. Now, I don't want to go into all that because, again, you can listen to it online, but instead of Creating a dialogue, which was what his desire was, he ended up lighting a fuse within the church. And this feud led to one of the greatest movements in the history of the church called the Protestant Reformation. Every church in America, with the exception of uh, cults or Eastern Orthodox, every church that is a gospel-preaching church is the result of the Protestant Reformation. Whether you are Baptist, Lutheran, non-denominational, charismatic, Pentecostal, none of those would exist had we not had this reformation, this lighting of the fuse that began to blow up and express a different understanding of what God's grace and faith was. Now, again, I believe that our Catholic brothers and sisters believe in, love, and worship the same Jesus we do. I've tried very hard to make sure that this is not an us against them. This is a theological difference, but they are our family. And because they stand with us in agreement on the apostles' creed, the foundation of the faith, the problem becomes this, and this is not just true of Catholicism, this is also true within our own church as well. We may say the same words, but they may mean very different things. You know what I'm talking about? We can say the same words, the same words can come out of our mouth, but we may not necessarily be meaning the same thing, and this is where the differences came in. Let's take, for instance, we talk about the Bible, Jesus, grace, faith, God's glory. Again, they sound the same, but what we mean is different. Here's what we believe. Now, over the last several weeks, we've talked about what the Catholics believe. I want to focus on what we believe. So what we believe about God's Word. This is the result of the Protestant Reformation or the Reformers. This is the first sola. Sola Scriptura. Everybody say sola Scriptura. Sola scripture alone. We believe that God's word alone is the authority and the life of the, uh, of the church and of every Christian, not the Pope, not a priest, not me, not you. We submit to God's word. Only God's word is the believer's authority, not culture, not a website. We go to God's word. When it comes to Jesus' salvation in the church, part of the Reformation, we began to understand this thing called sola Christus. Everybody say sola Christus. Sola. Christ alone. And here's what this means. We are saved because of Christ alone, because of Jesus' sinless and perfect life, his death on the cross and resurrection. He became the substitute for you and me by paying the debt of our sin and unrighteousness through a great exchange. We are declared righteous 
in Christ. And then last week we talked about grace. Now I do want to bring us back very quickly to what we taught last week on grace and the difference. See, within the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church teaches this. Yes, we are saved by God's grace alone, but we need God's continual grace in order to become morally righteous. Now here's the difference. See, what they're teaching, and some of you here believe, and this is ultimately what I believed. This was why my faith struggled so much is that I believe that while, yes, I was declared right with God while I was saved, I was not morally good enough for God, and so I needed to keep on doing good things in order to become morally righteous before the Lord. And that's what the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church do, is they are a grace gift through the Holy Spirit, through the church, that is infused to you so that you can do good work so that you can become morally right. This is not what the gospel teaches us. And the reason why this is important, because within Catholicism, if a believer dies and they are not morally right with God, they don't go to heaven, they go to purgatory. Purgatory is an in-between space where you have to suffer for the sins that you have done that you're still being unrighteous. You need to work off your unrighteousness. And Luther began to challenge this, and this is where we came to the reformers, sola gratia. All right, let's say it one more time, sola gratia. Grace alone. And grace alone means this. You and I, we are saved by God's grace alone. Grace is a gift of God and in no way can be earned, bought, or sold. Otherwise, it is not grace but a payment or a reward. Grace is God's unmerited favor, which leads us to today. Our fourth pillar, faith alone. What does faith mean? Because the bigger question is, what does faith alone mean for you and me as Christians? I want to look at last week's verse very quickly because you're going to see two words uh, uh, directly connected to each other. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For you are saved by God's, what's the word? Grace through faith. And in this, not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not from works so that no one can boast. There is a link, a direct and divine connection between grace and faith. And only when the two come together does the gospel make sense. Because if you don't understand grace, you're going to have a hard time understanding faith. And if you don't understand faith, you're going to have a really hard time understanding grace. And so listen to what Jared C. Wilson, he's a pastor and author, wrote this. We are justified, that means to be made right, by faith alone. But that faith must be in something or someone. Therefore, our justification, us being declared right, is on the basis of faith alone, but our faith is on the basis of grace alone. I want to walk us through this morning, I want to walk you through this morning, what does it mean to have faith? What does faith look like in the life of the church, in the life of the believer? And how is faith different than faith that your works will do enough? Your faith must be in something, and in this case, our faith is in Jesus Christ. We are unabashedly about Jesus here at Zion. No bones about it. We make no qualms about it. If you don't want to hear about Jesus, don't come to Zion, because you're going to hear a lot about Jesus if you come here. Think of it like this. Our faith is in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, but we place our faith in the grace of God because of what Jesus did for us. 
He has saved us and made us right through our faith in His grace because of Jesus. Now, while those words were said to me when I was a kid, when I was 14, I didn't understand them. Now, hear this next part, and I think some of you here need to hear this more this morning. Your faith is your weakness. Now, let me explain this. You're like, no, my faith is my strength. Nope. Because you are putting your faith not in yourself, but in God. And in order for you to put your faith in God, you must admit that you're not enough. Say these words with me. I'm not enough. I'm not enough. I have to have faith in something bigger than me. What does our culture tell us to put faith in? Ourselves. Put your faith in yourself. You can do it. And the gospel, God's word tells us, no, you can't. I can't. No matter how hard you try, you have to have faith in something bigger than you. And our faith is in Christ. There is nothing you can do but you have to have faith in the work of God's grace through Jesus. You and I, me, we bring nothing. We do nothing. We achieve nothing. In fact, this is why we need God's word. See, sola scriptura, the very first pillar, tells us that we only understand faith because of what God's word tells us about faith. So if you're not reading God's word, guess what that means? You have an anemic faith. Your faith can only grow from the source of your faith, which is God. And God first points out the reality of why we need faith through Jesus. Your very faith is a gift from God. Listen to what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 4. Now, let me give you context. Paul is talking about Christians who think that they've got the strength, that they're doing it on their own. I know way too many Christians, myself included, who think that they do, they do the work of faith instead of God doing it in them. Paul writes this, For who has made you different from anyone else? What do you have, he's talking about faith, that you did not receive as a grace gift and salvation? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Here's what Paul is saying. Why are you going around acting like you did something to get saved? You did nothing. The only thing you did was accept the gift. And that's not a work because the only reason why you could accept the gift is because God moved. Why is it so important that we understand faith is a grace gift from God? Because if it's not a grace gift, if it's not something that God does in us, then faith itself becomes a work, a good deed that deserves credit or righteousness, which is exactly the problem that Luther had with the Catholic Church and which led to the Reformation. We must begin to understand our faith differently. Our faith is not just in faith itself. Our faith is not in the church. Your faith should not be in Zion. Your faith is not in a pope or a pastor. It is not in a sacrament. It's not in baptism or communion. It's not in confession. Those things don't ultimately make us right unless they're in something. Faith in Jesus is what solves the issue. Faith in Jesus is what we need. Catholicism does not teach that you are saved by works. I want to be clear. I've had people say, Catholics believe you're saved by works. That's not true. They believe that you are saved by works through Jesus. So Jesus is still part of the equation. However, it comes down to this, is that while you cannot get to heaven without Jesus, you still have to be good enough to get to heaven through Jesus. In other words, making what Jesus did worth it for you. We are saved by Jesus. Now, what does this look like for me? This is where 
Grace alone comes in. Faith alone means none of us are holy on our own. And none of us are self-sufficient. All of us are at the mercy of God. I want you to stop for a second. What does it mean to be at the mercy of somebody else? What does it mean to be at the mercy of God? Mercy is a big word. If you remember, mercy is not getting what you deserve. How many of you would agree by show of hands that we are all sinners, that we all screw up? Big, small, all of us are sinners, right? How many of you believe that God is perfect and holy? Raise your hand. Holy, a holy God cannot be in the same place as an imperfect people. He cannot partner, have relationship with unholy people. And a truly just God would give us exactly what we deserve, punishment. But He's not just just, He's loving. And as a loving God, He sent the means through His mercy for your sins to be forgiven because He understood you couldn't do it. There's no amount of good deeds that can make up for what you've done. And so God in His mercy sent Christ. Now I want to go back to my faith story for a moment. See, I really, whether or not I understood it, and this goes back to how so many of us think, I actually believed that my salvation, yes, I was saved by Jesus, but I had a big part to do with my salvation. And because of that, it created all of this fear and uncertainty. And here's the thing. You cannot live in fear and still be in faith at the same time. Fear is the enemy of faith. Where fear resides, faith is not present. But this is the beauty of God's mercy and graciousness. No matter how fearful I am, His arms are still wide open for me and you to return to Him, to put our faith back in Him. There's no such thing as screwing up one too many times with God. Our God wants a relationship with us. He wants to have not just a relationship, but He wants a vibrant, loving relationship that is built upon trust in Him, not in ourselves. This is what faith looks like. Now, uh, as we look at this idea of faith in grace, I want to talk about what happened and what changed for me when I was in school. See, my, my professor asked me this. I'd shared my faith story, and I said, you know, I raised my hand, and I prayed a sinner's prayer, and, and I gave my life to Christ that night. And here's what he asked me, and this changed me. Like, I still, yes, I remember that moment. He asked me this, Jason, did you raise your hand that night because you wanted to be saved? I said, Yes, yes, I did. Okay, who's at the center of that again? I am. Listen to what he challenged me. Or, did your hand go up that night because God's grace was already at work in you and you were simply responding to what God was already doing? My hand going up that night was not me accepting salvation. It was me showing I was already being saved. Did that make sense? Last week, for those of you who raised your hand, that was not you choosing Christ. That was your physical response acknowledging that Christ was at work in you. I did not conjure up faith. I did not muster up faith. God stirred something in me that night and that responded. My hand went up in the air. Remember, I said, I don't even remember why I put my hand up. I just wanted it. The evidence that faith was present was my hand went up in the air. I was not at the center. God was always at work. 
Some of you in this room right now, God is working. Now, here's the thing. The Bible tells us that you can quench the Spirit. There are those of you in this room that God is calling. He is beckoning. He is saying, come home. And you're saying, no, I don't want to. And because God's a gentleman, He'll let you resist. But eventually, I believe that God will pursue you to the point where you're tired of running and you will fall flat on your face before the Lord and say, God, I need you. Here's the difference. You don't have to run anymore. You don't have to keep on running. You don't have to run until you're beat down and tired. You don't have to hit rock bottom. God's grace is right here, right now. And you have the opportunity, the moment to trust in that. And when you do, that is the work of God's faith moving in you. Not faith in you. God doesn't have faith in me or faith in you. He has faith in His promises and His goodness. Amen? And that's where your faith needs to be. Your faith should not be in yourself or in me or anybody else. Your faith is in the goodness of God and who He is. My hand going up, your hand going up, that stuff is the evidence, the proof of faith, not the earning of my faith. My hand was proof that God was already moving. There's an Old Testament story, a guy named Abraham. If you're not familiar with the Bible, maybe you've heard of Abraham, but Abraham became the center of a lot of Paul's writings when it came to faith. And let me tell you a little story. Abraham existed roughly about 2,000 years before Jesus, about 500 years before the law. Abraham was not Jewish because there was no such thing as being Jewish. He didn't have God's command. There was no Hebrew religion, no Christian religion. He lived in the land of Ur. Ur was one of the most technologically advanced civilizations of the time. And the primary god of Ur was a god named Nana. Not like Nana, like your grandma. (laughs) Nana was a moon god. This is most likely who Abraham or Abram worshipped. One day, God reveals himself to Abraham and he says this, Abram, you don't know me, but I am God. I am who I am. And here's what I'm going to promise you. If you trust me, if you put your faith in me, if you believe in my promises, I will give you land, I will give you offspring, and I will bless you beyond your wildest dreams. All you have to do is have faith in me. Now, at first we're like, well, of course he has faith. If somebody showed up to me. But here's the thing. There were all kinds of different gods. The God of the Bible was not known. And here's what happened. Abraham believed. Now, Abraham was not righteous. He was not a morally good person. There's nothing in the Bible that tells us that Abraham did anything to deserve this. The only reason why God did it was for God's glory alone. God needed somebody to begin a movement in, and he began it in a man named Abraham. Maybe God saw something in Abraham that nobody else did, but it wasn't because of Abraham's righteousness. It was because God wanted to move in the world. And so he calls Abraham out and says, trust me. And Abraham does. I need a volunteer for a moment. I'm going to, Scott, I I voluntold you. Get up here, Scott. You can hop up. I mean, if you want to be manly and jump up. I was really hoping you weren't going to fall, so thank you. (laughs) All right, so here's what we're going to do. I want to give you a picture of what faith is, okay? Turn away from me for a moment. Okay, now a lot of people think what faith is is us responding. Okay, if I say, Scott, what's your natural reaction to if I say, Scott? He turned around. Why did he turn around? Because somebody said what? Is that faith? No. That's not faith. Now, Scott, turn around again. Now, here's the picture of what faith is. Scott, don't turn around yet. Scott, I need you to to trust me, and I need you to walk out that door behind me. 
Just trust me. Now, if Scott turns around and he moves, what has he just demonstrated? Trust. Scott, turn around. Now walk. Keep on walking. Walk out the door. Run, Forrest. Run. <laughs> okay, you can stop. You can stop. Now, here's the thing. This is what faith is. What was the evidence that Scott believed me? Was it that he turned around? No, it's that he walked. The walking is not what earned the blessing. The walking was the evidence of belief. And because he walked, God said, out of your faith, Abraham, out of your belief in me, I'm going to give you all the rewards, not because of anything you've done, but because of who I am. Does that make sense? The evidence of faith is movement. Now, if Scott, Scott, turn around again. If I say, Scott, come to me and walk. But if Scott doesn't come to me and walk, if he turns around, turn around. But if he doesn't walk, is he demonstrating faith? What's the evidence of his faith? That's right, Adrian. It's walking. Go ahead, sit down. Can we give it up for Scott? Thank you. Here's why this matters. This shook Martin Luther to the core when he started reading the book of Romans and Galatians. See, what we believed and what humans believed because of twisting the story of the gospel is that, yes, we can turn around and believe, but now I have to do a bunch of stuff in order to get the reward. The only thing you have to do is have faith, and the only evidence of faith is movement. Movement is the evidence that faith is alive in you. And so as we look at this, I want to bring us to Galatians. What, this is one of the verses that wrecked Martin Luther. So then, does God give you the Spirit and work miracles among you by your doing the works of the law? Or is it by believing what you heard? Just like Abraham who believed God and it was credited to him, to him for righteousness. Our faith must be in something bigger than us, but the evidence of our faith, how do you know that faith is alive? You move, you act. As we look at this and as we come to the end, I'm going to invite our band back up. What are we putting our faith in? Here are some of God's promises to you and me. First, salvation. When you put your faith in Jesus and what God's done because of His grace, you are saved. I didn't have to keep on raising my hands that night because guess what? The minute Christ moved in me, I was saved. I live in security of that. I don't wrestle with wondering if I'm saved anymore. If, you, if your life belongs to Christ, you're good. You are saved. However, that salvation does something in me. It creates new life in me. It makes me a new creation. And part of that new creation means the old Jason is ceasing to exist. Notice what I said. It doesn't say it ceased to exist. It's ceasing to exist. I still have some of the old Jason in me that I'm still wrestling through. But that old Jason is being defeated because of God's grace, because I'm becoming more like God. In that, I experience forgiveness, resurrection, and heaven. Because in Christ, and this is what Paul tells us, in Christ, all God's promises are yes and amen. Every one of God's promises is true. We put our faith in what God has done. So how does faith become awake and come alive in us? You ready for this? You want to know the reason why we preach the gospel? Because Paul tells us in Romans 10.10 that faith comes alive by hearing the Word of God. God moves when His Word is preached. So you being here this morning and hearing the Gospel, I believe in God's faithfulness. Do you? I believe in God's goodness. Do you? 
I believe that part of his covenantal promise is that as I preach the word, God will enact faith in the hearts of the unbeliever. He will stir up faith in those of you here today who maybe are wrestling with belief. This is why, okay, so one of the things they say in self-help is you need to have, you need to speak positively over yourself. How many of you have ever heard that before? You need to speak positively. Here's the thing. You don't need to speak positively over yourself. You need to speak God's word over yourself. You need to speak God's promises over yourself. Because what I live by is not faith in Jason, not faith in what I have to say. I live under the faith of God's goodness. Amen? And so this morning, I feel like there's a word for someone in the room this morning. Someone here right now is living in some lies. Specifically, it's a lie that you you are not good enough. And here's the beauty of the gospel. You're not, but he is. This morning, I need you to hear this. All of his mercies are new every morning. So what you did last night when nobody saw, what you did this week, God saw it and his mercy is for you. His goodness is for you. His forgiveness is for you. Check this out. In Genesis, very first book of the Bible, very first two chapters at the very first verse, it says that there was nothing in the universe. The the earth was formless and void, and God spoke and said, let there be light. God created out of nothing. He created something, and something awoken. Would you stand with me? This is what the gospel does. God spoke light into the dark. This is what we believe about faith. Just as God spoke light into the dark and created the world, created light, God can speak faith into an empty heart. God can awaken faith where faith is dead. God can bring life where there is no life. And if you need life this morning, if you need light, I'm going to ask you, would you just put your hand up in the air and say, Lord, move in me. Put your hand up if you're there. Now here is the goodness of God. God awakens faith. I don't awaken faith. This is not emotional manipulation. This is a response. There are some of you this morning that God is saying, you're mine. I want you. I love you. This morning, if you've never surrendered your life to Christ, this is the moment to do it. Would you pray with me? Everybody pray. If you want to extend a hand up as we worship, let's pray this prayer together. Lord Jesus, say it out loud with me. Lord Jesus, thank you for your son. Awaken faith in me. Give me the evidence of faith in my life. Lord, may I live for you. I surrender all. I give you my heart. I give you my hands. I give you my eyes. I give you my mouth. It's yours. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to share one last thing as we come to close with worship. The evidence of faith. How do we know that faith is alive? How do we stir up faith? Paul tells us to work out our salvation. That word work out literally means to strengthen our salvation. It doesn't mean work for. How do we grow in faith? Well, it comes to a few things. First, it comes by sharing the word. Who are you inviting to know Jesus? 
How, who are you telling about your faith? Who have you invited to church not to be saved, but because you want them to encounter Jesus? We still do good works, but not to be saved, but because good works are the natural outflow of what God is doing in the life of the believer. You can't help but do good when you live under the goodness of God. Amen? We continue to pray. We seek the Lord. We do communion. All these things not to be saved, but because we have faith in the God who continues to save. I want you to hear these words, and then we're going to close with this worship song. In Jesus, you are forgiven. In Jesus, you are righteous. In Jesus, you are new. In Jesus, he awakens faith. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's come and worship. Let's worship like we actually believe in the God we're worshiping. Amen? Let's come and worship God because he is good.